Good afternoon. You're tuned into UCLAradio.com. This is The Menu, a radio show about Los Angeles' wonderful food culture and the people who make it special. I'm your host, Belize. And I am Henry. Welcome to The Menu. We have a very, very special guest in today. Chef Sang Yoon is the chef and proprietor of Father's Office, known for their deliciously controversial office burger and wide beer selection and Lakshan, an elevated Southeast Asian-inspired fine dining establishment that just landed at number 18 on LA Times Food Section's Best LA Restaurants. Sang, welcome to the menu. Glad to be here. Where's my Zima? <laughs> we don't know what that is. <laughs> Can you explain that to our audience and so, your hosts? Yes. When I attended this uh, institution uh, in the late 1800s, there was a beverage known as Zima, which I guess you guys now call White Claw. So Ooh. just brought back oh. memories, that's all. <laughs> we do that's love, <laughs> UCLA students do love White Claw. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it was called yeah. Zima back then. Oh. Yeah. Is the, it, was it the same brand? Thanks for making me feel ancient. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> was it the same brand or was it no, but it's, a different thing? It's the same the thing, same it was thing. a clear, you know, oh. kind of flavorless, yeah. You're a okay. super ultra hipster because you had were you know there before everyone else. It's very retro, yeah. <laughs> Zima was actually just re-released briefly and it sold out. Like people my age were like, oh my god, look at Zima. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you could buy White Claw. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Um, each week we start off with a question um, for everybody. Um, it's our segment called "What Did You Have This Week?" Where you tell us one thing. Or a couple things that you ate this week that you'd like to share. This oh, uh, I recently opened uh, the third location of Father's Office downtown, so I've been hanging out uh, in that neighborhood a lot, and uh, I have heard a lot about uh, a place called Sonora Town, and uh, I got to go for the first time. I, I've driven by a million times, don't have an hour to wait in line, but I waited it out, and uh, wow, uh, was it ever worth it? It is spectacular, and I think this is uh, emblematic of what's so great about LA. It's um, such a, uh, a humble little place, but the food is absolutely off the chart delicious, uh, and n now I know how to, you go there late, that's the trick, mm. and then there's no mm. line, but yeah, I've become a regular there literally in the last two weeks. <laughs> what did you get? Uh, the, um, the, sh the little teeny, the uh, birria, the, the little beef burrito, the, the mini one, uh, similar to what they do at uh, Burrito La Palma, which I also love. Right. Uh, but that's that's the ticket for me. I, I absolutely love it. I can eat like a hundred of them. <laughs> I have to hit both of those places. The Burrito La Palma is, is yeah. pretty far out there, huh? Yeah, no, but it's worth the drive. Go Sunday, no traffic, 20 minutes. Okay. Clever. Both both hit that LA Times uh, 101. Best, best food. Yeah. So Sang knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I try. I try to get out. I work a lot, but yeah, you you want to, you know, like you know, I have a lot of time to dine out. Uh, but you know, those are the kinds of discoveries that, and I think that's really what makes Los Angeles such a great dining city. It's that you know, there's such greatness at all price points. Uh, in mm -hmm. you know, there's no, you know, and we're we're a very casual town, dining wise especially. But uh, you know, that's just like this is what's so great about LA. This is like because there's nothing quite, you know, yeah, there's taco places, there's burrito places everywhere, but not at this quality level. Yeah. That's so, Belize, what did you have this week? Um, I went to Bad Mash for the uh, first oh, time. Oh, wow. Uh, that's like top five places for wow. me. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Spectacular. Downtown or, mm -hmm. or Fairfax? Fairfax. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Love it. Love the guys. The great family. Um, immigrant Canadian, uh, Indian family, Can uh, 
immigrated to Canada and then immigrated to, to Los Angeles again. And wow, those guys, those guys are just crushing it. Yeah. And I loved how, um, like you said, it was pretty casual. I went there for a weeknight dinner, but everything was so flavorful and so well executed that I don't know how to describe it other than like, it wasn't, I don't want to say that it was perfect, but it was, but everything was like well-made. Insanely yeah. close to perfect. Is that what you're yeah. trying to say? I, I don't know. I feel like when you describe certain things as perfect, you kind of have that, you know, um, very high expectation and they need to be like, you know, on a certain level, but some things don't have to be perfect and they can still be like amazing. Well, they, I don't know if it's perfect, but they have a dish at Bad Mash called, it's the chili cheese naan. I don't know if oh, you had it, but it is life changing. <laughs> and if I were to ever to bestow the word perfect to a dish, that's the dish. Wow. You have to have it. It, it will like, it, yeah, it's, it's like a, a, a quesadilla, uh, you know, like an Indian quesadilla and it's just explosive in flavor and it's just like, uh, I use the term slutty uh, <laughs> to describe it, but it is just like, it just puts you in a mood. <laughs> That's As amazing. a slutty brownie might? I don't know what a slutty brownie is. Uh, I don't know what that is. You don't know what that, a slutty brownie is like a brownie with cookies and Oreos in it too, I okay. think. Okay, oh, all right, I get it. Yeah, oh. something over the top. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, no, but uh, like in terms of like just like, it's sensual. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, like I, did you get sensual from Badmash at all? Um, well, not if you didn't have the chili cheese. Not. <laughs> I didn't have that one, but um, go back. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go back, and I'll I'll definitely go back and try out more items on the menu. I'm I'm a huge fan now, and I'm really sad that it took me this long to actually like go there like for the first time. But yeah, what so took many. you? Yeah, I know. Um, what did you have this weekend? Um, I went to the last day of Dine LA. I went to Orson Winston for the first time. Wonderful. Uh, Joseph Santano, great friend of mine, uh, one of the most talented, uh, and, and I say committed chefs, a true culinarian, just a, a salt of the earth guy, a real chef's chef. And uh, something I really respect about what he does is he's able to do, well, he, he basically took over the corner of Spring and, mm -hmm. uh, or a main and fourth there. And, but he's able to do uh, such elevated cooking uh, like Orso Winston, as well as do like his like, um, hometown San Antonio Tex-Mex at Barama. Like, and like, his range as, a, as an artist is so broad. And yeah. he's just, um, I'm grateful that he's a friend of mine. It was pretty, pretty wonderful. And it just amazed me how he could do, execute a Japanese, Italian, or French-ish menu and then next door operate, you know, Barama, Tex-Mex and do them both really amazingly. It, it was phenomenal. It was one of the um, better tasting menus that, that I've had. And, and I asked, they were doing a very discounted um, tasting menu for Dine Olay. Um, and I asked their server, you know, why are you doing the same menu that you usually do, um, but for you know, $25 off. And he said, you know, we sometimes we, we realize that the price that it usually is, is often not attainable for two guests on a regular basis. So for a month, we wanted to, you know, sort of let people um, experience it who may not be able to do that usually. And it was it was really wonderful. And um, it was a really wonderful dinner. And, and the service was amazing. And I'm very glad I went. That's another must-go place, uh, I think, downtown mm -hmm. L.A. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience, so I'm glad you got to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And 
before we get into all the work that you do now, we kind of want to ask you questions about your origins, kind of, you know, want to know how you got where you are today. So our first question is, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up in L.A. and how your relationship with food was influenced by um, the people around you and the places you went? Well, I'm an L.A. kid. I grew up here. I, I was born in Seoul, Korea, but my family immigrated when I was just a one-year-old baby. So um, I'm as Angelino as it pretty much gets. Uh, I grew up mostly on the west side, Santa Monica and Brentwood, not too far from here. Um, and my my initial relationship to food came very, very young, like when I was like you know, eight, 10 years old, uh, and most because my parents were uh, not around a lot and my mom was a terrible cook. <laughs> so um, in uh, kindergarten, uh, my, uh, my family met this uh, lovely Jewish lady who had twin granddaughters in my kindergarten class, and then she found out that all, I had no more living grandparents and basically adopted me unofficially slash officially. Uh, and uh, she was my grandma Rose, uh, was my first culinary influencer, uh, and she literally taught me how to make uh, uh, her chicken soup, uh, the kreplak. Basically, the entire Jewish kitchen was my my first exposure to actual cooking because no one at my house could cook. Uh, and then it, it 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 took off from there, and I had a love of. Um, I actually wanted. I I had the pipe dream of wanting to be a, a chemist, and I was really, uh, really into tinkering. Uh, so I love chemistry, and I love food, and I loved art, and I discovered that uh, cooking allowed me to scratch all those itches at once. Mm. And uh, despite being, you know, there's a lot of... Um, Asian kids who come here to this country, you know, parents always have high expectations scholastically and everything. And, you know, it was a weird day when I told my mom, I, I want to be a cook. <laughs> that didn't go over that well. <laughs> so then you, you, I mean, you did that, like at a really early age, you, you went abroad, right? And to New York and, and you, you worked in some Michelin starred kitchens. How, how did you manage to get there and work your way up in those kitchens at, at such a young age. Well, so those stories were um, <laughs> were, were initially lined with a lot of failure because I, I was actually um, um, expelled from one culinary school. <laughs> that's a whole other, that's a separate Ooh, episode. let's talk yeah, about that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was asked to leave, in quotes, uh, the other culinary school. So I really was not cut out for culinary school. Uh, so the the only way forward for me was to go hard knocks, apprentice, old school, France, uh, you know, and just learn it the hard way, um, you know, just be a slave, basically. Uh, so instead of paying for an education, you know, I paid with uh, blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that worked. I mean, it worked out. But I mean, that was really the the I, I think the best path for me. And, uh, you know, instead of it being spoon fed to you, it's literally like force fed. And, you know, you you comply or you die. Yeah. And uh, I have no regrets. But yes, it's it's a it's a, probably the hardest way to, you know, work your way up uh, as a chef. Mm hmm. And it's like the Navy SEAL training of, <laughs> of cooking. <laughs> you got yelled at a lot? A, a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. And you got so much experience when you were young, but then you also took a break from cooking um, to come back here and get your bachelor's. Yes. I uh, moved back and the deal with my parents was, uh, yes, we'll let you uh, go uh, after high school move. You know, I actually graduated high school one year, you know, early and I, I got to, you know, basically not go to high school my senior year. So I was allowed to go travel, go kind of, I, I, my parents 
I think, thought at the time that uh, this whole cooking thing was going to pass. It's mm. just like, ah, he'll get over a this phase. whole thing. Yeah, he'll go to law school. He'll be he'll be something <laughs> real. But um, it just it didn't pan out <laughs> that way. Uh, so the deal was you can go do this for a couple of years, but then you got to go to school. So you need a plan B because you're probably going to fail at this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't uh, cook in any restaurant, uh, but... It was, it, it never, you know, the you know, like the fire never went out. It right. was, you know, it's all I really did. I wanted to, you know, cook and, uh, you know, it's like, I, I think about like, this is what I wanted to do for free. I didn't need to be paid to do it. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, if I can be paid anything, that's then, then you're winning. Yeah. And do you think your education kind of affected your experience um, after graduation, especially um, when you look back at your career or your interests, and you met, you mentioned that you kind of realized you wanted to do it more, especially the like cooking, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, when when something is, you know, I mean, I don't want to say taken away, but, you know, you have to, you know, yeah, you made a deal with your your family and, you know, you have to, you know, go get educated and, you know, um, I actually took a class called food anthropology here. Mm. It was actually my favorite class because it's, you know, it's not my major, but it was something that really like sticks with me, and I have fond memories of that class specifically. But yeah, no, it's um, it, it's going to school, studying uh, a subject like psychology. Absolutely, I like today. I probably use the psychology more than I do the cooking, but uh, no, it was definitely something I I don't have any regrets about doing. Uh, but you know. You know, when you look back on, you know, 20 some 20 plus years of, of doing this, uh, you know, you think of all the roads, you know, the, the, the lucky breaks you get, uh, you know, the not so lucky things, the things that you thought were, were horrible, but then they turned out OK. But uh, no, I, I really loved, you know, being here. It was, you know, going to school in my hometown. I didn't start school here. I started in Boston. I actually went to go play hockey in Boston. It was like that was another silly wow. dream. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um so I had to move back, you know, move back to to the hometown. But uh, yeah, I took a couple years. I think it was like three years off from cooking. But you know, I cooked. I became a home cook. Yeah, really important, I'm sure. Yeah, no, and and there's a lot of great home cooks. And I always tell people, cooking at home and cooking restaurants are completely unrelated uh, <laughs> subjects. So after you graduated um, from UCLA. I assume you didn't immediately become executive chef of Michael's, but eventually, eventually you got there, um, which is a, it's a destination that's like pretty, pretty influential in, in, in pioneering California cuisine. What, what sort of things did you learn there um, that you sort of took with you into your businesses later on? Wow. So, yeah, that was my first executive chef job. I was in my late 20s at that point. I think I was 27, exactly. And uh, I had just left uh, the Wolfgang Puck organization where I worked at uh, another sort of seminal restaurant, Chinois on Main in Santa Monica. I got to open the Chinois location in Las Vegas, and Mm. I got a a good amount of um, experience there. And through a stroke of uh, luck, um, I'd actually was hired as the sous chef at Michael's uh, and the chef at the time uh, could not fulfill his obligations going forward. So literally the first day of work, I was promoted to executive chef. Wow. Yeah. So that happened. So um, were you ready for that? Absolutely not. And uh, but, you know, I don't know what, you know, like what should have happened because I was a sous chef before that. So I would only been a sous chef for a year. I was still very young. But uh, working at Michael's was my actual dream. It's the it's my hometown restaurant. It's the uh, place where the, the whole idea of California cuisine was born uh, and the the all star lineup of chefs 
uh, who had been there before me, the Nancy Silvers and the Jonathan Waxmans, uh, the, the Roy Yamaguchis, like, uh, you know, you hope one day to have, uh, you know, your name part of that that gang. And, uh, you know, I, that was a must. I have to work here. And uh, that that experience is what led me to going off on my own. My next step was actually, you know, my own business. Uh, so, yeah, I cannot overstate the importance of Michael's. And it just turned 40. It's still there. Yeah. 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 So, not, you know, like not only was it important, it still actually mm. is quite important. Yeah. And um, and then, like you said, you transitioned into your own business. Um, how was that transition period for you when you opened Father's Office in 2000? Um, what was, you know, the biggest change you experienced or like the challenges that you faced in the this new role that you acquired? So it, <laughs> it was terrible uh, <laughs> it, to put it. Yeah, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, you know, your parents, you know, you're explaining, okay, so you've worked all this time in fine dining, you know, white tablecloth, like, you know, the, the most exclusive restaurants in the world. And now you want to buy a dumpy beer bar and try to explain this was uh, also, you know, yeah, that that didn't go over well with the family. And uh, truthfully, there was no plan. Um, the, the reason I did that um, and Father's Office under my... Uh, watch it will be uh, 20 years yep. this month and uh oh it's crazy thinking about it uh that's like almost as old as i am d- don't you don't need to say that that's <laughs> really yeah that's why you don't know what zima is uh the, <laughs> but you know i here i am like you know just shy of 30 years old and no real business plan uh no real n- never had run a business of my own um but the reason i did it was um at the time I realized that everyone with my training, everyone with my background, st- like if you were in fine dining, you stayed in fine dining. You opened your own white tablecloth restaurant when you felt you were ready. And at the time, I felt that that's not what L.A. needed. I felt like we really needed casual food that was better. Uh, I, and I didn't love what I call best behavior dining, like dress up, valet the car, you know, make a reservation, you know, be quiet, use the right fork. And I've always asked the question is like, well, why can't you have great food without all of the trappings and all of the cost related? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the actual live, the experience of living in Europe and visiting Spain and, and seeing like Southern Spanish tapas bars, uh, Parisian brasseries, places that were casual, uh, Italian enotecas. I actually lived in Italy for a little bit. And I, I just realized that in Europe, there's high-end casual dining, uh, places where you can just let your hair down. There's no rules. And that's really what sort of um, appealed to me. And I felt that Father's Office on Montana, this dumpy beer bar, could be this thing that I didn't know how to explain. And um, upon opening, I was told uh, by a friend that you're, you have a gastro pub. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> it's like, that's a stomach ailment. And it was a, a term I had never heard. And as it turned out, there was this establishment in London called the Eagle, where two highly trained Michelin star accomplished chefs took over a pub. And this was the, def- the definition of what I was doing. Because before then, I had no idea what to call this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, people call and say, can I make a reservation? Oh, I heard you were the chef at Michael's. This must be a fine dining restaurant. I'm like, nope, we're just a bar. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're, you know, if you 
Wikipedia this, and it must be true it's on Wikipedia, but it does say that Father's Office was the first American gastropub. It does. Yeah, so that's the, the genesis of that story. And again, I didn't even know what the word meant, so uh, <laughs> I can't take credit for uh, you know having this brilliant idea. It just <laughs> happened. Um, you can take credit uh, for the burger, though, right? That's something you can take credit for. So this is the Father's Office burger for those listening who might not know. Um, it's uh, also a first, right, I would say. Um, you f- called it controversial, by the way. <laughs> I did. <laughs> is it not? Is it not controversial? Deliciously controversial? It's controversial. I mean, yes. It, it, in the beginning, I, it maybe still is. But yes, it did stir some controversy. There was right. a lot of talk about it. So um, I don't, I've been struggling to come up with, the, what would you call it, an alternative burger? A um, non-traditional it's definitely non-traditional okay. uh, for a lot of reasons, but um, I, I really call it uh, the, the exercise in making that burger was about distilling down what I liked and didn't like, separating what I loved and what I didn't like in burgers. And it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't like I didn't take a burger, I, I, like I, I didn't have a starting point. Let's just put it that way. And um I just tried to look at it objectively like in a clean slate. It was like, I love beef. Uh, I love dry-aged steaks. Uh, and I love French onion soup. So anyone who's had my burger a bunch of times, the, the slowly caramelized onions, um, you know, think of French onion soup is it's in a beef broth, a dark beef broth, um, the, the sweet onions, um, the crunchy crouton, and then the gobs of Gruyere cheese melted over. And all of those things are on the Father's Office burger. So French onion soup was a, was, um, a, a connecting, a, a touch point for that, for that. And I just thought of, um, and, oh, and I love the flavor of arugula. I thought mm. arugula is so peppery. And it, it just co- accompanies the flavor of beef so well. So I just thought of it as like, how do you make a beef sandwich uh, that happens to be a ground? So, yes, it's it, everything about it, it has like a onions, bread, beef, cheese. So, yes, the form of it is a burger in every way. Uh, you know, the sort of I call the silhouette of it. Uh, but uh, I thought of it from a I, I didn't come approach it from trying to construct a burger. Mm-hmm. It, it just ended up that way. Um, I went last night to Father's office. Um, I ordered the burger and I was with a group of friends. Medium rare? Medium rare. Ah, wonderful. Okay. Yes. I said, I said, your uh, server asked and I said, medium? No, medium rare. Uh-huh. Um, you didn't ask for ketchup? No ketchup. Okay, asked, good. Though good. I did go, I had gone. So you with, were allowed to stay. Okay, right. Good, I, was, I went with good. my dad uh, earlier um, um, a couple he knows months ago. He what Zima is, by the way. He probably does. Yeah. But he didn't know that there was no ketchup. So he asked for ketchup for the fries. And I said, no, no, no. Don't say. <laughs> Panic ensued. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and your service graciously said, sorry, no ketchup. But um, anyway, we ordered the burger, came to our table, and my friends were like, what's that? And I'm like, this is the burger. And they're like, that's, that's a sandwich. I'm like, no, it's the burger. And, and um, it, was, it was fantastic and, and a really wonderful I guess I was like it's the first it, w- it was the first sort of burger to change it up from the traditional you know those traditionalists like which I guess my friends are some of those people. It it was the first burger that um I guess that I mean I, I always tell people like yeah I didn't invent a hamburger uh it was an expression <laughs> of a hamburger uh but I guess I was a sort of like the one of the first or first uh sort of pedigreed you call chefs to you know kind of make a statement 
in that format. Um, but I don't know. I just, uh, I, I didn't have, like, even having a burger on the menu was not part of the plan. It was just like, I just was like playing around one day with some um, uh, dry-aged New York steak trim. And I thought, well, what could you do with this? Uh, you know, it's a, it would be a waste to throw away such flavorful scrap. And I thought, let's just grind it, see what happens. And I was like, wow, this tastes like a dry-aged ribeye, <laughs> uh, but in the form of a burger. And then that's when the light bulb went on and... Uh, but back then, no one was dry aging beef uh, that was ground. And we're still one of the only people to do it. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to the ketchup thing for mm-hmm. a second. Yeah. I knew you would. <laughs> uh, where did, I don't want to say hate, but where did that, I guess, um, dislike came from? Do people think I hate ketchup? No. That's, I don't, I don't think know. So. I, don't think, I don't think you do, <laughs> I but it kind lot. of. I don't know. It kind of seems like that <laughs> on the outside. It does. We'll, 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 we'll but then, answer it now. Do you hate ketchup? No, okay. I don't <laughs> hate ketchup. Uh, I, so, what your dad, your your what you said, your dad did was is quite common. Is that I think you hear burger fries, and your immediate reflex is to ask for ketchup. It's just like a rote habit, and I think ketchup plays a, an important role flavor wise. It's just um, the way I look at it is uh, I'm a pretty highly trained chef. My job is to make food taste good. I'm supposed to take ingredients and, uh, and, and connect flavors and come up with a, a harmonious whole. Uh, you know, I'm supposed to play like notes and make it sound good. Same, same idea. Uh, and I think ketchup is great if uh, the, the flavors, uh, like a fast food burger, uh, if the flavors of the ingredients, the beef, the lettuce, the bread, if you're American cheese, things that have very little flavor, I think ketchup is kind of like becomes like an exp- exclamation point. Like it almost needs ketchup. So I understand the reflex of why people just immediately look for it. But uh, if you taste our burger, the, the beef is, again, dry aged prime uh, cuts of uh, of USDA prime beef. Um, it, it would be the equivalent of going to Peter Luger's and, you know, you know, splatting ketchup <laughs> on it. Uh, all of the ingredients in the Father's Office burger um, bring something to the table. Like they're highly flavorful ingredients. So I say, well, it doesn't need ketchup. So that's really more the statement than I hate ketchup. I think ketchup has its place. I think ketchup is great making pad thai, for instance. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, it's oh. actually necessary. If you read any pad thai recipe, ketchup universally <laughs> has to have it. Great. So ketchup absolutely has its place in a kitchen. It's mm-hmm. just I don't I think it's lazy if as a chef to make something that requires your guests to put something else on it. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of my point of view. So I like to make it ready to eat. Yeah. Sort of the same. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. I was going to say I agree with that so much because I usually realize that if I'm not really satisfied with the fries or the hamburger, that's when I go for the ketchup or like yeah. mustard or, or whatever. Or a salt shaker. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I always think is like my job is to season the food. So you eat it. It's delicious every bite. And you don't think it needs something or something's mm-hmm. missing. And that's, I feel like that's what I'm paid to do. So I need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of where the substitutions politely declined also comes from. Is that right? Uh, I, 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 I didn't say the word politely, but, <laughs> 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 but uh, that's another thing we started. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. You have a lot of firsts in your career. We do. Yes. There's a lot of yes. It's weirdly, yes. But yeah, <laughs> I, I I kind of started that thing, and I was told that that wouldn't work. But 20 years later, <laughs> we still never made a substitution. But that was done really out of necessity. I mm-hmm. mean, the first father's office is literally a shoebox, and um, you know, we there's no there's no room. If you saw the kitchen, you'd be blown away how we can actually do what we do in there. Um, so. Making substitutions was literally my job in fine dining. It was literally making completely custom dishes for people. Um, but I think culturally we've, even as a country and as a city for sure, um, you know, the Jelinas, the John and Vinnie's, like friends of mine, you know, like people in my business, my peers, uh, you start to see that uh uh, the substitutions and modifications being declined on a lot more menus after mm-hmm. Father's Office. So it's not such a unique thing anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of good to see that, um, you know, I think in America we're used to like, get it, or, you know, get it your way. But, uh, you know, if you travel anywhere else in the world, um, people don't ask for substitutions. People just order something else. If they can't have it, they're allergic. They just, you know, eat something they can eat. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not unhappy that that's caught on. It actually makes me proud that um, I think it just means I think uh, diners have become more adventurous and willing to try things rather than being so set in their ways. And we've turned a lot of people around. People say, I hate blue cheese. And we go, try it because <laughs> we're not taking it off. And they go, oh, I guess it's okay. So I think sometimes people just act out of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just don't know or they'll say like, oh, I, I've heard like, I can't have lamb. Like, why? It's like, well, my mom used to make lamb. It was disgusting. It's like, well, I'm not your mom. So <laughs> try it. And then they're like, oh, wow, this is nothing like. So I think early in life, if you're, you know, you don't have necessarily a positive food experience with, with an ingredient or ingredients, sometimes through adulthood, you just kind of automatically reject it. Uh, and I think having these kinds of policies kind of almost forces people to go, wait a minute, let's at least give it a try. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is you go to a restaurant, you don't like something, you send it back and then you don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I always tell people that. It's yeah. like, just try it. What's the worst <laughs> thing that can happen? Yeah. Yeah. And um, trying new things for the customers are important, but um, another question is, um, has a burger been exactly the same since you first created it? Do you try something new with it as well as you go along? Or have you tweaked it? Um, I mean, you obviously probably did, but do you like try new things when you're do, you know, thinking about the burger? No, the flavors remained exactly the same. The wow. process and everything has wow. not changed in 20 years. The only thing we had to we were forced to change. There was a. Uh, we don't uh, mix fresh and aged meat anymore. We now age the entire uh, the the, the uh, meat in the office burger is a hundred percent chuck. And now, uh, where we used to add in a little bit of uh, rib in New York, uh, we now just age the entire chuck. Uh, it's a cleaner, more efficient process. Uh, it's more consistent. I think it's actually better. But other than that, no, nothing's nothing's changed. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> 20 years, yeah. yeah. Well, the Big Mac's been around how long? That's true, <laughs> which I have never had a that's single true. one. You've never had, had a Big two Mac? Two office burgers. Yep, never had a wow. Big Mac. Wow, okay. I don't yeah. think I've, I've had it either. <laughs> I don't know. I was a Burger King person, like kid. When really? I was yeah. Did you customize everything? Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but fast food's a whole other category. Yeah. 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 That's like, you know, it's a separate thing. Well, it's like mm-hmm. if you want to customize, you go to... Subway, you know, you get what exactly what you want, but you go to find out, you know. Yeah, but you're still at Subway, cuisine. so. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you really get what you wanted? <laughs> um, so Father's Office is not just um, 
you know, food. There's you have like over there's like sixty or so beers. Yeah, there. totally. Yeah, we have like thir- we have thirty six draft that constantly rotate, and we have a ton of like great bottles, and we have some of the oldest. Uh, relationships with some of the best breweries in the country, um, like Russian River. Uh, we were the first Russian River account in Los Angeles, the, the first Bear Republic that makes Racer 5, uh, Lagunitas, uh, Anchor, the names, the, 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 the breweries that started with Father's Office. Um, and then as the craft beer movement continued to grow and grow and grow and explode, um, you know, we were, I'm very proud to say that these were uh, beers that we helped launch. We were there. We, was, you know, we were for many, many years the only outlet for a lot of these beers that we kind of take for granted now. You see them in the grocery stores, but you know, Father's Office was that beacon of of of, of uh, wonderful craft beer, and I'm so happy that that uh, the category of craft beer has grown so big. Mm-hmm. It just it's it kind of validates like, yes, I was right. <laughs> Did you craft your menu sort of around the flavor of beer or the flavors of beer? Yes, absolutely. Because one of the things in fine dining that this is what kind of appealed to me was um, the, the, the culture of sommeliers, wine pairing. And wine pairing is something uh, I did most of my, you know, the, the first fine dining part of my career. Um, and I worked with lots and lots of talented sommeliers. And I actually, you know, got a, a, a certification as a sommelier as myself. Uh, but I wanted to do that with beer. I thought beer was very underrepresented. I thought, why is beer kind of like such a throwaway thing? Like beer's cheap and it's, it's supposed to go with hot dogs. And and I never understood. I, I just didn't think that craft brewers were getting the respect. Uh, and beer itself as a category was sort of like not looked at the way wine was looked at with the level of prestige. And uh, I think Father's Office was also instrumental in kind of giving, shining a light of, uh, you know, importance on the world of craft beer because a lot of really, really talented people. In fact, um, Vinny Trilozo of Russian River Brewing is a former winemaker and he he's a, a brewer in Sonoma County, literally in wine country. So I love it when there's compare and contrasts and I always try to turn wine drinkers into beer drinkers. And <laughs> uh, So yes, I think sometimes beer is more appropriate for certain things mm. than wine. We also, of course, have wine, but yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm a staunch advocate of um, connecting the flavors of beer. We also cook with a lot of beer at Father's uh, Office. Yeah, so we try stout to... Stout. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have a stout, imperial stout uh, ribs mm-hmm. as well. So I, I'm a big fan of connecting beer and food. So you mentioned that uh, champagne is actually one of the loves of your life, quote unquote, right? Or, or at least a passion. Um, it's a, a, an affliction. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you not go with champagne? At your restaurants. Oh, uh, because I want it all for myself, really. (laughs) Uh, People always ask me, why don't you sell champagne? It's like, then I would have less. Um, So you're like a nightly armchair champagne by the fire. Ah, wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes, you've described my fantasy life. I don't don't get to drink as much champagne as I I, I like. But that's another thing I discovered while working in France. It was, uh, uh, you know, I I didn't know much about champagne, but, uh, you know, there there was... um, you know, there's always that point. Like it's like the gateway drug. It's like the the, the first sip. What was it? What what hooked you? It was a, a champagne called night. It was 1979 Salon, uh, and the story of how I was able to acquire uh, a small glass of this uh, golden nectar was um, when you work the Garmanger, the cold station at um, the restaurant I worked in in Paris. Um, 
we uh, the the cook got to cut the foie gras terrine and unmold it, and we had to took, take the end pieces off it, and we would use it kind of like almost like prison barter. <laughs> so you could keep it and eat it yourself, or you could maybe trade it for whatever cigarettes, whatever, uh, or in this case, champagne. So I was offered a trade for a small taste of. 1970 on Salon in exchange for a small piece of foie gras and I made that exchange and it changed my life. <laughs> I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> um, and speaking of, you know, the drink me- drinks menu and father's office, now you have, like you said, a new lo- location in downtown LA, um, Arts District to be specific. Yeah. Um, Three weeks old now. why did you wow. decide to go for a third one after such a long time, especially in the arts district, since the neighborhood has kind of been turbulent recently with a lot of openings and closings. Yeah, like, um, I don't have a, I think, a, I, I never have a business plan. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I like the neighborhood. Uh, I, you know, ha- I like hanging out in little Tokyo. Um, the Culver City location is technically in the arts district of Culver City. We're around a lot of galleries. I guess I'm just attracted to arts districts. I, I don't really know. But uh, no, I, I'm a big fan of uh, that part of downtown LA. I think it's a real, it's like a small enclave. It reminds me of um, like Soho like 30 years ago before it blew up. Mm-hmm. It's like cool, hip, quieter. It's like you're in a city, but you're not among high rises. Um, I just think it's a really beautiful neighborhood. I, I love what's going on down there. I, but it, you're right, it's still very young. It's still, as you said, turbulent. I think it's trying to find its footing. And But I, I absolutely think it's uh, only going to go one one direction. Mm-hmm. It is constantly improving. Um, the, the, the housing costs, unfortunately, are quite expensive there. Um, that's the only kind of drawback there. But it is um, a really desirable place to hang out. Um, and absolutely, I could, you know, if I were a much younger person, I could totally <laughs> see myself living there. Um, so congratulations on that third third opening. That's Thank you. Wonderful. Please come by. W- yeah, I yeah. will. You're invited. Ooh. Just no, not your dad though. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. You opened um, the first one in 2000, the second one in 2008, right? Yeah. And this third one in 2020. Yeah, I timed it perfectly <laughs> right when the recession hit. It was perfect. I was like, wow, how did I do that? So. I- how do you how did you know it was ready to open a new one, especially after you know such long a period of of you know? Yeah, not. so my like restaurant like well the father's office brand the the growth trajectory does not follow any sort of logic. Uh, it's um, I, I people always ask when you have a successful place they always ask when are you going to open another one, and I am not of the belief that I ever want to open another one of anything. I'm not about repeating. Uh, my answer has always been. I, I won't open another one. I'm, I'll only open a better one. And I always believe that it takes time to iterate, learn your lessons, and you need time. I think that if you rush to open, you know, like something's a hit and you just want to like print, print out more of them, I think you end up um, repeating a lot of your mistakes. Like you're, you're taking something you're doing wrong and repeating it and you don't realize it. And then I see a lot of failures that come from rapid expansion. And I think it's because you've, you know, like you had a flaw that you've copied as well. So it's like you've Mm -hmm. you've copied the success and in an attempt to copy the success, you're also copying the flaw. And then the more of it you have, sometimes that eats away at the foundation of what was successful. So, I mean, this is getting (laughs) meta, but yeah, (laughs) but that's really my belief is that I think it takes time for a restaurant to mature. 
uh, your staff to mature, to, for you to really understand the business uh, and not just go, great, we're making tons of money, let's open five more. And <laughs> yeah, and I think that if you're led by that le- greed, I think that's another reason why uh, there's a lot of failure in our business. People just you know come and go very quickly, and I you know uh, you know I, I'd rather go slow and steady, and you know again try to make it better the next time you do it. Mm-hmm. So sort of like software. It's like you want to get... I was going to say, the, there's a bug. If there's, you're copping over your code yeah. and there's a bug in it, yeah. you're screwed. Yeah, so you know, I think iterating and not copying it over is, is an important step. And I'm slow. What can I say? <laughs> Just not that fast. I should get faster. <laughs> I have to say you're remarkably successful for not having a business plan. Try it. it, it <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. Maybe business plans suck. <laughs> I've seen a lot of business plans. I've actually seen people have handed me business plans. It's really funny. And, uh, you know, and then they went, uh, went on to open these businesses and then failed. So it's like, well, maybe the best thing to do is not have a business plan. <laughs> um, I have a question about that, actually. Um, because you're not just a chef, you're also an owner. So what's kind of... The most nerve-wracking part of that more managerial, you know, owning stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, right. So, <laughs> as a chef, you know, people look at, you know, they see Top Chef and they, you know, it's like it's cooking, it's you know, fire and brimstone and creativity and artistry and. But as an owner, um, the thing that um, keeps me up at night is that I have like 350 employees, and and their families, and I always think about my responsibility um, to these people. This is something I take very, very seriously. And, um, you know, and a lot of my employees have been with me for, you know, um, you know, 10, 15, you know, you know, a long, long time. I don't have a lot of turnover and I think I, I'm so grateful for that and I've gotten to know these people and I've watched their kids grow up and um, to, to always understand that I am their lifeline, I am their, uh, uh, you know, the source of income. Uh, I, 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 you can't take that lightly. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what is your, now that you're, you know, big, big owner, what is your, big owner. <laughs> what is They're your, huge. <laughs> what does your sort of day to day look like since I'm assuming you're not, you can't be in every kitchen at once. I can. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> uh, no, it's but that's not my job. Uh, my my job isn't to uh, to cook every meal. hasn't been for a long time. Uh, but uh, no, but I I I go to every rest. I try to go to every restaurant. You know, every week, and uh, I'm around. I'm a hands-on guy. Mm. So um, you transitioned um, in 2011, I believe, right from um, father's office to Lakshan, which is. Um, more escalated um, dining. Um, what was that transition like? Um, and did you have to sort of relearn some of the stuff you learned while in the kitchen um, since you had been so long at, you know, father's office, which was different? Well, that's a, that's a great question. But uh, so the, the, the operational uh, process at father's office is still fine dining. And a lot of people don't know that. So um, I always, this is something that's hard to explain to, to consumers is that um, I always look at, it's like father's office is not a, 
uh, hoity expensive bar. It's actually a very inexpensive fine dining restaurant because I was trained in a, as a, in a particular way with a particular methodology, a level of cleanliness and discipline of how you operate a kitchen and how. So this is my business is chef owned, chef run, chef operate. It's like it's everything is from the perspective of the chef. So um, I didn't have to relearn anything because this <laughs> we've been doing this the whole time. So um, I always say like. Uh, Files office, if I ever wanted to turn it into a fine dining restaurant, we just need to get some tablecloths and get a hostess, take some <laughs> reservations and get some nicer china and silverware. And, you know, we, we could we're we're closer to that in our ethos than than people really know. And that's OK. But, yeah, no, Lakshan was not a, a hard transition. It's just that we needed a host reservations, nicer silverware in China. <laughs> um, but it's just a different expression. It's just it's like. Um, playing a different instrument, maybe. Um, it's like Father's Office is one type of expression, and Lakshan is just a slightly different uh, expression of myself from the same person. Mm. So, no, it wasn't hard to do, but it is a very different business. It's a very different sets of expectations. And I always equate fine dining, a restaurant like Lakshan that's over the last, de- you know, we're, we just turned nine there. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's like birthdays, like children's birthdays. Um, <laughs> 29. Uh, so, um, it it's um Laksh- a restaurant like Lakshan or like any high end restaurant is sort of like I call it an in- independent movie. It's it's really a, a more passionate, smaller expression, uh, more detail, um, and you know, if you make an independent film, you want to win a Sundance Film Award. You know, um, you know, and Father's Office is you know much more like the the, the Marvel franchise. You know? <laughs> we, we, we can make more of them, but uh, it, it has a broader appeal. So, but um, that's not a great analogy, but you know what I'm saying. But like, yeah, no, Lakshan is something that's very important to me, but yeah, it keeps my foothold in, in that kind of world of fine dining. And fine dining, that term is totally evolved, mm-hmm. totally evolved Absolutely. since the beginning of my career. You know, it was always about like, be quiet and the tables are spaced really far right. apart. It's like eating at Lowry's. Right. Yeah. It's like throwback. Yeah. Now but you yeah. have Bavel and, and like um, and Birdie G's, which are yeah. just super casual fine right. dining. But they're fine dining. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. like awesome, incredibly talented chefs. And I, I, I think that's another thing that's L.A. has been so instrumental and influential in you know, L.A. is now kind of widely accepted as being called the best food city in America. And that was not true when I started. And that's a huge revolution that's happened. And it's always been New York, San Francisco, and other places. And a lot of chefs, myself included, had to leave L.A. I was from L.A., but, like, we didn't have a really robust, great, high-end chef restaurant culture here when I started. And now it's, like, totally the opposite. People are moving here. You got New Yorkers Mm -hmm. moving here to open restaurants. And that's been a complete palpable shift as well. So, uh I think LA has been instrumental in actually redefining what fine dining means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because in New York you still have old school like wainscoting and chandeliers and tuxedoed waiters, and you know, I just I, that's just not us here. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think LA is really kind of we are deciding what fine dining is now and for the foreseeable future, and I love that. Yeah, and. That gives you more chance to innovate within your own, you know, restaurants. Um, for example, the food at Lakshan is, you know, sometimes Southeast Asian inspired, also New American inspired a little bit, but it's not really defined by any region or country. So when you 
have that much, you know, um, mix that a lot of like mixture of different cultures. How do you make sure that flavors are distinct, clear, and not like muddled? Well, <laughs> that's a wow. I, that's a you you uh, you you like literally went into my head. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a good question. Uh, we 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 don't live the the world is open now uh you know you can you know like literally this is how old i am is like when i was a kid you weren't allowed to go to like vietnam it was still a communist country you couldn't travel to like laos cambodia like like places were closed you know burma and uh these were like mysterious places that you know you weren't allowed to set foot in and now uh, even china china when i was a kid was you know you can't go to china and uh just i think the world has really opened up and the, the idea of cooking with sort of like uh, reverence to political borders is extremely limiting. It's like, what is Viet Vietnamese cooking versus uh, Laotian? Because, you know, these places, agriculturally speaking, culturally speaking, everyone's descendant of the Chinese. Um, and agriculturally, they're all the, sim they're the same. They're very similar. The, uh, the same things grow. Um, so I, I don't like to look at it. Uh, Vietnam, you know, like to di dissect it that finely. Um, if you go to a Thai restaurant in Los Angeles, uh, I can literally point out the dishes that did not originate in Thailand. But <laughs> which ones? Th th you don't have enough time. <laughs> yeah. But I'll give you an example. Larb. Oh, Larb, really? Larb's not Thai. Oh. Nope, it's not Thai. <laughs> if you, you want to get technical, that's a, yeah. There's a lot of dishes that are either Cambodian or Laotian. And so you have to remember, like, since we're on the subject of Lakshan, Southeast Asia historically was a crossroads. And it was, you know, they have a tremendous history of colonization, Western colonization, whether it's the, the Dutch in Sri Lanka, the French in Vietnam, Vietnam uh, the, the, the Portuguese in Macau, uh, you know, the British in India. It's like on and on and on and on. So uh, it, it's a place where uh, culture is in its history shared and mixed and you can't really define it anymore because the colonization changed it forever. And I, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the world to cook from. But I look at all of Southeast Asia as a singular pantry and as, as a singular culture. So um, it's almost like saying, well, I have no faith to any or allegiance to any one country. I'm looking at you all as one. And that's kind of what the, the, the core idea of Lakshan is. Mm. Um. How do you decide when it's time for an item to be removed from your menu? Is it purely, oh, this isn't successful? Um, and, or, if it, or is it something I'm ready for a change? And how do you go about the process of creating another one to take its place? You guys ask really good questions that I'm not prepared for. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you said this was like going to be fluffy and fun, but you're asking me really. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Take your time. Yeah. We'll chat. Um, it, that's a good, that's again, a really hard question because um, I have taken things off menus, uh, especially at Lakshan that were, again, where I got a lot of shit for uh, and meaning that people were very mad at me. And uh, I've gotten one star Yelp reviews because I've taken things off the menu and people have written, I'm not coming back till you put this thing back on the menu. If the specific dish in question was called, it was a Dan Dan noodles yeah. mm -hmm. that Jonathan Gold and I have had, you know, zillions of, uh, you know, Around you know round and round conversations about, uh, but uh, you know sometimes you just get sick of it. Uh, sometimes you think it's time to go. Um, 
you know, and I'm the chef, so it's a, it's usually a unilateral decision. Sometimes it's sales. Sometimes it's, you know, like a metrics, you know, like it's not selling. No one likes it. Um, so it can be one of, you know, one of those reasons. Sometimes it's seasonal driven. You know, we just can't do this, you know, for all year round. Um, so there's a multitude of reasons uh, why a dish may move. Um, it's hardest. This is, this is... Um, something when a restaurant's open for a long time, and I've learned that um, there's dishes that after a certain point, and like the Files Office burger, and then we had this beet salad on the menu at Files Office, and I actually changed it because I had to, it was driving me crazy, but um, I think there's a certain point where if a dish has been on a menu for a really, really long time, I mean like you know decade plus, that it almost doesn't become your dish anymore, it becomes the customer's mm-hmm. dish. Like, I don't even own it anymore. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I feel about, like, the office burgers. Like, it's not mine. <laughs> it's like I, I can't, like, I can't do with it what I want on a whim. Mm-hmm. I have to consider what other people will think. Thousands I, of people. Yes, yes. So, I, I, you know, I think, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in business for a long time, you may end up as a chef, like, in this quandary. It's like, well, I, you know, maybe I can't take it off, even if I wanted to, and it's my option to do so it's like it's you would just upset so many people so i think we have dishes that are like that uh so it's like yes it's like it becomes almost like public domain at some point <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like a very philosophical question is art for art you're getting is deep. it for public this is college radio <laughs> we always getting, do you guys are getting real deep but yeah no but that's that's honestly how i feel about you know dishes that you know like you you can't change it's it's not it's, you know it's like it's not even mine anymore mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, so you know i mean i guess i guess if you're fortunate if you're you're you have that you know you <laughs> you're in that position to think so yeah um unfortunately we're running out of time yeah we need to oh, do some god. rapid fire thank god yeah. oh. <laughs> um, no more yeah, hard <laughs> questions good five we have five five about five ish minutes okay yeah. do you have some questions um yes. i actually have one question um, so most of our listeners are college students. So what would you recommend or what are some of your, you know, could you share some of your wisdom for people who want to become chefs or um, have their own restaurants in the near future? Anything you'd like to let them know? Very easy one again. <laughs> yeah, such like softballs. Like, yeah. First, first recommendation is ask your parents what Zima is. Uh, <laughs> I always tell people um, the the rest those who want to enter the restaurant industry those who want to become chefs I, I people always ask like what made you want to do it? and I said I or what how did you choose this career and I said it, I didn't choose it it chose me and I think that someone has to really feel that way that it has to be some sort of calling um, because it it's completely senseless it's like the the from a purely analytical and business side it absolutely makes no sense but you know what neither does wanting to be an actor, a singer, or, or an entertainer in any field. And, and really, the restaurant business is not really about, um, well, there's two sides of it. It's like, do you want to provide caloric sustenance or do you want to express yourself? And that's the decision you have to make, is you just want to make food or do you want to, you know, because you can have a career in the restaurant business and never make an original dish. You can just mm-hmm. serve Caesar salads and, you know, you can just, there's enough food in the world, enough dishes where we can, you know, keep making the same things over and over again. But uh, if it's the calling is to express oneself, then it's really more of an artistic 
calling. And that's a commitment and there's no guarantee of success. So again, you might have to piss your parents off, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, I wanted to really quickly ask you about the Helms Bakery Cafe idea. I know this has been a project that's been sort of long, long time coming. Um, do you have any ideas of what we can expect from the Hell's Bakery Cafe? Yeah, so hopefully it's this year, and okay. we're really shooting for this year. And um, the Helms Bakery, where two of my restaurants are, is um, a historic bakery that was in operation from 1930s to the 1960s, and they used to deliver in those cute little square trucks in the neighborhoods. Again, ask your parents about that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm gonna open. I'm gonna bring back the Helms. Uh, brand and open a, a bakery marketplace right across from Father's office on Helms Avenue, hopefully sometime uh, in the third quarter of this year. That's a great space for you, huh? You like that? I love it there. It's a, it's a <laughs> wonderful building. It's a historic building. I love the history. Helms, the, the bread was the official bread of the 1932 LA Olympics, and it was actually the first bread to be taken to the moon on an Apollo mission. Wow. Hey, maybe wow. you could become the bread to sponsor the 2028 Olympics. Yeah, I actually didn't think about that. that yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. You're my new business manager. I love it. Yeah. Um, this was our time. Um, thank you for coming on our show and chatting with us. Do you have anything you want to plug in before we go? Anything you want to promote on air? Uh well, Father's Office Downtown LA is uh, mm -hmm. something I'm, again, something that took a long time. I'm really <laughs> excited about it. So if you guys are downtown, hanging out, I mean, the, there's so much to do down there. Uh, but I really love the neighborhood and I think it's worth a visit. So Father's Office Downtown LA Arts District is something that you should come check out. Well, congratulations on your your new business, your new your new restaurant, and for the the award that Lakshana's got on the LA Times Best um, Restaurant List and you're, um, we're very inspired. So thank you very much for coming on, Tang. Thanks for grilling me, guys. <laughs> You're welcome. This has been <laughs> the menu. Um, go eat at Lakshan. It like changed my life and um, changed my outlook on food. Please do it. It's amazing. And go to Father's Office. You've been listening to the menu. I'm Henry. And I'm Belize. And we'll see you next week.